Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by League Apps. League Apps is the leading youth sports management platform, providing organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. On a mission to bring the benefits of sport to kids everywhere, they go beyond technology to provide leaders with professional development and relationship building, and to work with sports-based organizations to address issues of accessibility and equality. To learn more, find them at League Apps com or as league apps on all of the social networks now here's the host of the show longtime soccer broadcaster and voice of united soccer coaches dean linky jeff van dusen the great ceo for united soccer coaches so astutely said multiple times in philadelphia at the convention that the united soccer coaches is the home for all coaches the home for all coaches so i'm going to make sure that this podcast is the home for all coaches as well. My name is Dean Linky. This is the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. It is presented by League Apps. And yes, you've heard me on multiple times say we have a great show. Let me tell you folks, once again, we have a great show. In fact, we have an incredible show. We kick off meeting the amazing woman that is Jerice Cologne. She is the CEO for the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, making a difference with a slogan that reads clearly, champion respect end abuse. Great message from Jerice. Then if you listened to me last week, you heard me go on and on about Nicole Hercules and the job she did leading the black soccer coaches community, that incredible event on Saturday night of the convention where I got to see Lincoln Phillips again. Lincoln Phillips, a true legend of the game. He's already written an autobiography. There's already a documentary about his story and now they're getting ready to make a movie. That's right. A movie that you will see on the big stage Lincoln Phillips is on the show. Then we hit the training ground with one of my favorite guests, Tree Beckman, who's all about culture. She breaks down not one, but two articles that she has recently submitted. Tree is always a pleasure. Then Dan Wogue is now an at-large member of the United Soccer Coaches Board of Directors. If you know Dan Wogue, you love Dan Wogue. I caught up with him on Podcast Row. And we end with our 30 under 30 member, Marty Corby, who won three national championships as a player at Grand Valley State. I've got great respect for Grand Valley State because that's where Dave Diani and Jeff Hostler came from. They're now getting it done in the Big Ten. Marty Corby, now down in South Carolina, looking for her next big opportunity after recently getting married. Marty Corby is also great. Jarese Cologne. Lincoln Phillips, Tree Beckman, Dan Wogue, Marty Corby. I said it was a big show. It is a big show. And it starts after this message from our presenting sponsor, League Apps. We bet you didn't get into this business for the back office duties. That's why we created League Apps, the industry's leading youth sports management platform. So you can spend less time with busy work and more time doing what you love. League Apps provides organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. Go to leagueapps.com to learn more. League Apps is proud to be the presenting sponsor of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by League Apps. Once again, here's the host of the show, Dean Linky. 
Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Lee Gaps. I am Dean Linky. I am on podcast row at the convention in Philadelphia, and we are covering some heavy issues, and we are so pleased to be joined by somebody who's truly making a difference now and in the future. We're talking about Jerice Cologne, the CEO for the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, Champion Respect, and Abuse. You can check it out at uscenterforsafesport.com. Org. I was really looking forward to this interview, Jarese. I mean, obviously, right now, more than ever, we have been made aware of some abuse, so it is present. So first of all, thanks for being on the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's do a big picture way above. If for some reason somebody's living under a <laughs> rock and they don't know what U.S. Center for Safe Sport is all about, can you paint that picture for us? Sure. So the Center for Safe Sport, we opened about five and a half years ago in the wake of some really terrible abuse allegations coming out of gymnastics. So I think everybody remembers the gymnast that came forward after the Larry Nassar scandal. We were open just a few short months after he was in jail. And it was at a time where the public, the athletes, coaches, parents, Congress wanted to see action and they demanded it. And so the center opened our doors to do a couple of things. And the one was to make sure that there was a safe, independent place for people to report abuse and misconduct within the Olympic movement that was really there to help support them and really to be able to demand accountability from individuals who were hurting athletes. The second was to make sure that there was consistent policies that every one of the sports within the Olympic movement, including soccer, would have to adhere to when it came to interacting with children and, and minor athletes. And the third was really making sure that education was at the forefront and the, at the, the core of everything that we do around understanding what abuse looks like, how to recognize it, how to report it, how to respond to it, to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And so it's been an interesting journey because I think that, you know, the women that came forward, you know, six years ago for gymnastics really paved the way for others in other sports to do the exact same thing and that is progress. That is progress and let's get to know you a little bit better. Jarese Cologne, the Chief Executive Officer, can you talk a bit about your career in child safety and how you bring that perspective to your work at the U.S. Center for Safe Sport? Sure, so I've been doing this now for about 20 years which is hard to believe but I started my career at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. My very first job was answering phones 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. from parents whose kids were missing or whose kids had been abused in some way. And that was probably the hardest job that I've ever had in my life. But I knew that it was something that I needed to do more of, just in a different capacity. And so I was at the Center for Missing and Exploited Children for about 15 years, um, really running all of their education and prevention. Then I went to the Boys and Girls Clubs of America, where I was vice president of child and club safety. And child club safety in a boys and girls club means a little bit of everything. So not only abuse prevention, but fire safety, active shooter drills, all the things that kind of go into keeping kids safe. And it was a federated model, which is interesting because I feel like it prepared me for what the Olympic movement looks like because, you know, we had 4 million kids in the Boys and Girls Club movement. There are 11 million people who are impacted in the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic movement every year. And it was just a a really kind of smooth transition from Boys and Girls Clubs over to Olympic movement, but certainly a learning lesson because, one, I'm new to sport and there are so many of them. But at the end of it, I think that everybody involved wants to make sure that athletes, the kids are safe. And so it was really a perfect fit for me. As I sit here and talk to you, I have to admit, I picture like a giant heart coming out of your body, like right above <laughs> you, because it takes a big heart. So what was it that drew you to this kind of work? 
You know, I'm from a small town in Virginia, Spotsylvania County, and when I was in high school, there were two girls who were abducted and murdered. And it really just shook our community. I remember leaving high school one day, I was driving at the time, and the sheriff pulled everybody over to say, have you seen these girls? They live next to a friend of mine. One of the girls was in my sister's class, so it really hit home. The organization that was responsible for really connecting the dots to of their murder to another girl who was murdered a year before in the neighboring town was the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And it was something that I had watched for a really long time that really, again, shook me to my core at a really young age, and it's something that I knew I wanted to be involved with. We're so glad you are. Tell us about Safe Sports Mission and how the organization came to be. Sure. So we opened the doors in 2017. Congress passed the Safe Sport Authorization Act in 2018, which really codified our role and responsibility within the Olympic and Paralympic movement. A few years later, they passed the Empowering Olympic and Paralympic Amateur Athletes Act of 2020, which further codified our independence, provided funding for the organization. The organization really had one simple goal, right, to end abuse in sport. And that meant not only making sure that education was a core function of everything we do when it comes to, to sport, but also driving accountability with individuals and organizations. And I think one of the things that people are most familiar with when it comes to the Center for Safe Sport is our investigations. About half of our staff is focused on investigating allegations of abuse and misconduct. We get about 100 or so reports every week. Last year, we ended the year at about 5,700 reports that came in, which if you think about it, we only had 300 the first year, and that was like six years ago, and we've banned or suspended upwards of 1,800 people since we opened our doors. And so this is something that we don't take it lightly by any means, but our end goal is to make sure that sport is safer, and I think that we're doing just that. You're hearing the wisdom and the passion of Jerice Colon, the Chief Executive Officer for the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. You can learn more by going to uscenterforsafesport.org. Now, it seems, Jerice, like much of what safe sport focuses on is prevention and education. Can you talk about some of the themes you cover in your trainings? Yeah, so, you know, we have about 13 different modules that are available to the public, particularly in the Olympic and Paralympic movement, that focus on a number of things. Sexual abuse and misconduct prevention are always going to be at the core of what we do, but we've also developed a number of resources and tools that are for athletes with disabilities, adult athletes, for youth, because we know that every sport is a little bit different and every audience is a little bit different. So making sure that the resources that we develop to help people understand what abuse looks like, how to recognize it, how to respond to it, and how to report it is super important. And for us, you know, we're most known, of course, for the sexual abuse and misconduct investigations and that and those resources. But what we're seeing over the last couple of years is an increase in emotional and physical abuse. And so we've developed a lot of resource and educational content for parents, for administrators, for coaches, and for kids that help identify what emotional abuse looks like. How do you report that? How is that different? And I I think that as we start to just kind of change and shift, you know, we're, we're seeing more of that. And kids and, and athletes and coaches just need more resources to be able to say, this isn't right. How do I prevent it? And make sure that, that doesn't happen on my team. And that's a big part of what we do. Jerice, you are here at the United Soccer Coaches Convention for a reason. Can you tell us about Safe Sports' partnership with United Soccer Coaches Coach Credentialing Cohort? I am so excited about this program. So we had a chance yesterday to meet with the coaching cohort. I think there are about 60 folks that were in the room all from all across the country who are part of this program that are driving just 
excellence when it comes to coaching and safety and safe sport are a big part of that. So every one of the coaches in the coaching credentialing program will go through the safe sport core course training as part of their cohort. And I really think that as we start to, especially in as United Soccer Coaches starts to drive this new approach to coaching that is much more holistic than any other coaching program I've seen in the country, I think that soccer is going to be leading the way for other sports to do the exact same thing. And coaches are at the tip of the spear, right? They are the ones who see and hear just about everything. And the more that we can prepare coaches, particularly in this area, I think we will all be safer and kids will just have a just a more fun and just better time playing. Done a lot of interviews. This is one of my favorite interviews. I'm really enjoying this with Jerice Cologne, the CEO for the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. Once again, you can learn more by going to uscenterforsafesport.org where their mantra, champion respect and abuse, that's strong. Champion respect and abuse. That means something. It does. It does. And that's the core of what we do. Because at the end of the day, we owe each other to live and, and just to breathe respectable environments, right? Nobody wants to be disrespected on or off the field. And that is a big piece of how we treat our athletes, how we treat people who go through our process with the utmost respect and understanding that this is heavy stuff. What is your message to organizations who want to access safe sport training? I say go to our website, take a look at the offerings that we have. There is something for everyone. It's uscenterforsafesport.org. The training doesn't take that long. You can spend 20 minutes, you can spend 30 minutes, or you can spend 90 minutes going through our core course. In addition to that, we've got a lot of other resources that are video-based, that are scenario-based. You know, spend a few minutes every day just taking a look and reading through those because you'd be surprised of how they're going to start showing up in your life. It's interesting because coaches aren't just coaches. They're also parents. They're also clergy people. They're teachers. This is going to start to have a ripple effect in our society. And so the more people that kind of take that time to learn, I think it is just it's going to have this just a massive effect just on us as a society. Now, what is your message to the broader coaching community about how they can be a part of a culture shift towards safer sport? You know, I think that, again, it starts with coaches, right? And so one is to make sure that they're safe sport trained. I think that's going to be the core of it. But also, you know, keep your eyes open. If you see something, I hate to sound like TSA here, but like if you see if you see something, say something. It's up to us as adults in particular to not ignore things that we see or may think that it may not be quite right. I think coaches have eyes and ears on the field. They have eyes and ears with their with their athletes, and they have the trust of athletes. And so we owe it to, to athletes and to to kids who are playing sports each and every day to be able to hear them, to listen to them, making sure their voice is heard. And so that if there's something that's happening, like we got to intervene. And I think that's probably the most powerful thing that any coach can do. As you know, right now in the soccer world, particularly on the women's soccer side, now more than ever, what you're doing at U.S. Center for Safe Sport matters as we talked about champion respect and abuse you know that as you're walking around here. I mean, it's present, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you feel about the steps that are being taken right now? I think that it's interesting what's happened and, and, and how everything has started to unfold. I think NWSL has taken some really great steps in order to, one, make sure that safety is at the highest of priorities for their players and start to create safer and just more equitable environments for the women that play each and every day. We see that like women's soccer has blown up in the last 10 years in the United States, and we owe it 
to not only the women who are, are playing on these teams in the NWSL, but every little girl who is coming up and wants to be like them. And I think that the steps that NWSL is taking right now, whether it's investigations or if it is investing in safe sport staffing or really just making it very clear to their players and to their owners and to their coaches that this is no longer acceptable, it is going to create just a safer environment for years to come. Let's cut right to helping people. So if there's 10,000 people that listen to this podcast every week, if somebody right now is experiencing some kind of abuse, how do they use you to end it? Yeah, I mean, pick up the phone, go to our website, make a report. The online reporting form is, is available 24-7. We've got folks that man the phones as well. We will take as much or as little information as you would like to give. Because again, this is really heavy stuff. And so we also want to make sure and understand that people who are have experienced abuse have to kind of move at their own time and their own pace. We don't want to rush it, but we are there for them when they are ready. And so if you are a victim of abuse, or if you've experienced abuse, or you see abuse in this world, in this in this sporting environment, they should feel comfortable in calling us and know that there's someone on the other end who is going to listen, who is going to take their complaints seriously and going to do everything we can to investigate them fairly. So as the CEO, Jerez Cologne of the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, you are indeed a bright light. And I know that to be a bright light, you've got to have bright lights around you, including people like Hillary Nemchik, who's done an amazing job making sure that you're making the rounds here. Can you talk about your support staff, including Hillary? Oh, my gosh, I have an amazing team. The center now has about 125 people. About half of them are dedicated to investigations. And, and those folks are, bring decades of experience from law enforcement, local, state, and Federal Child Protective Services, Title IX, you know, you name it. But we have just a ton of really well-educated, well-intentioned people who have made this issue their top priority. They come into the office virtually <laughs> and give 110% each and every day. Every year we see growth and it's hard to keep up with that growth, but the team has done a really excellent job of managing that and making sure that they put their best foot forward each and every day because they know that at the other end of every report, at the other end of everybody who's taking an educational training or a module or who is participating in one of our audits, they know that there's a person on the other end of that and that is important. Last word time as you've heard me say several times your website because I think it's important for people to take that away uscenterforsafesport.org the U.S. Center for Safe Sport Champion Respect and Abuse it's been an incredible interview with Jerese Cologne the CEO if folks heard nothing but your last word what do you want to leave them with it's super important for them to one be trained be able to recognize and report and respond to abuse, but call us. Don't think that someone else is going to make the report. Don't think that someone else is going to take that responsibility. Be the person who, who takes the, the chance to call and make a report to stop abuse. We owe it to every athlete who participates. Great last word. U.S. Center for Safe Sport, Champion Respect and Abuse. Great visit with Therese Cologne, their CEO. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What a great message from Therese Cologne. Just outstanding. Please listen and learn and go to them if you see any kind of abuse. Her message could not have been more clear. Next up, I am so pleased to reminisce and remind each and every one of you about the greatness of Lincoln Phillips, one of the premier coaches in this country. Lincoln Phillips was at the convention. Lincoln Phillips moved me just as he's moved so many. And Lincoln Phillips joins me next. 
Introducing the first ever CoachCon, presented by Soccer.com in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada, August 11th through the 13th. Register now to experience distinct coaching education from top-level professionals and earn a special topics diploma in game analysis or organizational leadership. Spots are extremely limited. Register today at unitedsoccercoaches.org slash coachcon. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Lee Gaps. And certainly if you listened to last week's show with Nicole Hercules and even this week's show already, you know how excited I am to welcome in our next guest, the great Lincoln Phillips. But before I do that, and because we're going to talk about his documentary and a movie that's coming up, but we didn't really talk about the autobiography of Lincoln Phillips, I want to start by doing that. So please listen in. And bear with me before we meet Lincoln here on the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Coach Lincoln Phillips is certified to the highest coaching level by the United States Soccer Federation and helped prepare American goalkeeper Tony Miola for the 1994 World Cup. A former FIFA technical staff instructor, he was also the technical director of Trinidad and Tobago in 2006 when the country became the smallest ever to qualify for a FIFA World Cup. Holder of a master's degree in physical education, Coach Phillips is a motivational speaker who believes that strong mentorship is critical to the success of every young athlete. As I mentioned, in addition to the documentary that we're going to talk about with Lincoln, the movie that he's getting ready to do as well about his life, he wrote a book back in 2014 called Rising Above and Beyond the Crossbar, the life story of Lincoln Tiger Phillips. Let me tell you a little bit about the book. The civil rights era is the backdrop to this story of a black college soccer team who played their hearts out to overcome racial injustice in 1970s USA. Stocked with some of the best Caribbean and African players of the era, the Howard University Bison went on to win two national championships under the martial discipline of coach Lincoln Tiger Phillips. The Tiger made history by becoming the first college coach to win an NCAA championship for an historically black university when the Bison stormed to the 1971 and 1974 titles. He is a former professional goalkeeper who did his utmost to repel the sorcery of Brazilian maestro Pele in the early days of professional soccer in the United States and helped take Trinidad and Tobago to bronze at the 1967 Pan Am Games. This biography crackles with anecdotes of Coach Phillips' life, from his roller skating and carnival costume-wearing boyhood in Trinidad to his days as the nickname-bestowing soccer coach who expects his players to excel academically and athletically. Above and Beyond will transport the reader from the tears of tough losses to the euphoria of two national titles. Read the story of an athlete and soldier so exhausted from long days of training for competition that he can't polish his army boots when he returns to base and learn more about the man who finds the ideal slogan to rally the embattled Howard team to a second national title after they're stripped of the first. The epilogue through Lincoln's words goes something like this as I speak on his behalf. Again, quoting Lincoln, and I quote now, I hired a ghostwriter to write my book, but when it came to the epilogue, he said, you must write it yourself from your heart. A message to all coaches. Well, I did, but my son Sheldon, now the Director of Player Safeguard and Welfare at the Philadelphia Union, was responsible for guiding most of my writing by interjecting several things that he saw from his perspective. 
Another individual, my captain Ian Bain, wrote the end. He turned out to be a brilliant coach who credited me and my coaching philosophy methodology as the builder of his coaching style. The epilogue was put together as a poster, and you can Google to find that. The intent is to market this book to all coaches. That's right, all coaches, especially those on the youth and collegiate levels. He ends by telling me as I prepare to welcome him in, just call me coach. So let's welcome in coach, the one, the only Lincoln Phillips. Lincoln, welcome to the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Dean, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on your show. And uh, when I want the public relations guy, uh, I know exactly where to get it. Thank you for that <laughs> wonderful introduction. Well, I've got to tell you, you know, I was so inspired on the Saturday night of the convention when Nicole Hercules was, you know, saluting all of these legends. And then she was kind enough to call you up and she called you up almost right when I was kind of drawn in. And Lincoln, you moved me, you moved everybody in there like you always do. But Lincoln, it's a new day. It's a new dawning. It's really exciting. I know you felt it that night. Can you just touch on that before we talk about this cool movie that's uh, coming out real soon? That night was very emotional for me, okay, because of where, where it came from. That was a brainchild of mine. As a matter of fact, it all started with, um, with Ralph Perez. Ralph Perez and I, we were on the national staff together, and we were in Colorado, and we were roommates, and we were talking about how more Blacks and more Hispanics, you know, we're not getting recognition. We think we should, and we should we should have a, a, an association. So after talking for one or two years or three years, I was at the convention. And then I looked around. Now, when I was at the convention um, in 1974, on the first time, uh, there was only two Black coaches, Coach uh, Ted Chambers and myself. Now, in 1986, I think it was, I looked around and I saw about 10. I said, wow, it just dawned on me, let's have the association. It was a Sunday and they were cleaning up and I asked one of the janitors uh, if he can just lend us this room. He said, well, okay, I'll clear all the other rooms so that will give you all time to have the meeting. And we had our first meeting and that was that Sunday. I will never forget it in my life. And then we had, you know, it, it, it was shaky. In the first three, four, five years, it, it was shaky. I was the first president, not a true president, didn't do a good job. So I handed it over to Mike, who I know, Mike Curry, who I know is, is, is an extremely outstanding young man. And he took it for a little while and then it went on. But I think the United Soccer NSCAA at the time decided to, to bring us under the umbrella. That saved the day. That was an outstanding move. And they brought in the Hispanics, you know, the LGBTs, the college, everybody. Great move. And we still had little problems, but um, Dan Gordon and Kendall Reyes did an excellent job getting us into respectability. And then they handed it over to Nico. Man, did she take it to the next level? Amen. And that room, she was, she did an excellent job. And that job there as a, as a, as the chair is 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 impossible. And she recognized that, and she decided to to have a, a co-chair. 
okay, uh, in, the, in the coming uh, administration, to, uh, two co-chairs and two members on the committee. So she spread it out, had it added more inclusive, and it was, it was just a wonderful night to, to see so many Black coaches. And I saw a, a whole lot of white folks were there too. I mean, just having, and that is what moved me. That is what moved me because it was not about black. It was about, you know, it was about soccer and it was yes. about being together and enjoying the game and enjoying each, uh, each other's company. And that's what it's, it's, it was meant to be in the first place. You know, it was about soccer. It was about the love of soccer. And dare I say, it was about love. That's what I felt in that room. That's why I was so moved. That's 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 what it's all about. <laughs> that's what it's all about. Yeah. Well, and clearly people now want to tell your story, Lincoln. And to be fair, to use that word love again, that's because they love you. And it reminded me, in fact, I told Nicole Hercules, you know, when I walked in, I saw you and then you went up there. I was like, wait, I loved Lincoln way back when. And I was proud to say, you know, for me, it wasn't, you weren't a black coach. You were just a great man who I loved hanging out with, you know, whether it was you or Bora, Timo or whatever. So I never, I didn't put you in a category, which is how it should be. And that's how we're going to go moving forward. However, exactly. yeah. However, Timo and Bora, they don't have a movie coming out about them. So we got that on them, Lincoln. <laughs> so let's talk about this movie. What, uh, I think it's a documentary. Tell me if you know the name of it. Tell me where you are on it. Give us as much as you can. I know you can't spill the beans on everything, but this is really exciting. There are two things. First one is a documentary. The documentary has already been made. It's called Redemption Song, the untold story of Howard University's soccer team. And that was put on by, by um, ESPN. And Mark Wright was the producer of that. If you go on YouTube, you, you can see that. That has already been outside and it's based on my autobiography. Okay. Okay. One of the producers, um, Peter Lawson, saw the documentary, read the book, and he said right away, that's what he, he told me, he said right away, that's a movie. Now, this guy, Peter Lawson, I don't know if you remember the film Spotlight. There was a scandal uh, on the Catholic Oh, great movie. Boston. Yeah, great okay. movie, yes. Yeah, uh, Peter Lawson, that's the guy that produced it. Wow. Okay. He is a producer, big time, you know, Academy Award producer. And you know what? He called me. I mean, I was blown away. Uh, he even came down to my house and he brought down at the time, Chiwetel Ejiofor. He was uh, one of the actors, that, uh, the lead actor in 12 Years a Slave. That was a great movie. Mm -hmm. He was, uh, at the time he was um, interested in, in, in directing. They came down to my house and they just wanted to meet me and the family and my wife and go down to Howard. And it was, I'm sitting here in my living room and it's two movie stars, big time <laughs> in my living room, you know? And, and it was just like, you and I just like friends, you know? It was, it, was, it, was, it was very, very moving, very, very moving. Where the movie is right now, the script has been written. I don't know if you saw the film Hustle, okay? Yes. It's about a basketball player. The guy who wrote that, Taylor Matillion, is the same guy who wrote my script. Okay. It has been presented to all the producers. They love it. 
they recently hired a director. I can't uh, let you know his name at, at this point. And normally the problem is when the script goes to a director, sometimes he can just tear it apart. He loved it. He loved the whole story and left it just as is. Mm. So he's on board. And the next stage now is, is a search for someone to play my role. You know, you got to find the most handsome man in the world right there, Lincoln. So they're going to be looking, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> oh, oh, man, I, I, I appreciate that. Man. The, check, the check is in the mail, man. <laughs> I just call it like I see it, man. I'm telling you, that, that'll be so exciting. So that, um, that's It's exciting to see, you know, how they will bring bring that movie. And it's, um, I asked the producer, what kind of movie would it be? He says, I can tell you right now, it's not going to be a black movie. It's not going to be a sports movie. It's not going to be an HBCU movie. I said, what kind of movie is it going to be? He said, it's going to be a damn good movie. Ah, that's <laughs> what I'm talking about. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's, that's kind of what we're trying to do now, right? Like not make it a black movie or a white movie, but just make, you know, damn good coach, damn good movie. Let's keep rolling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, in the movie, let me give you a, for instance, once somebody asked me who is one of the coaches that I admire most of in the whole wide world, and I said, Harry Kehoe. Mm. He said, why? When Harry Kehoe's St. Louis team, we played them three times. When we play them, they're all white, we are all black. We know that we're not going to get any negative comments from them. We're not going to get any ribs or anything like that. It's just pure football. Pure football. They playing like Barcelona, tic tac, and we playing poof, off to the races. As soon as we get it, boom. Uh, so two different styles. Sometimes we, Harry and me, would meet at half line, and we would say, "Boy, you know, anybody could win this game. We can't do anything about this game anymore. It's all up to them." And people couldn't understand in, in games like these. How come two of us talking at the sideline? because it's, it's a mutual respect for each other. Because when they took the championship away from us in 71, they offered it to St. Louis. Harry Kehoe said, we don't win championships like that. We win championships on the field. And besides that, Lincoln Phillips is a gentleman, he's a friend of mine, and I will not do that. Mm. That spoke wonders. So yeah. that's the type a movie it is. We, I've had a lot of good people like Harry in my life. That's what hopefully the movie can bring out in, in full color. I'm enjoying this so much. Up in my soccer office, I have a picture of Harry Kuehl and I at in El Salvador getting ready uh, the day before we played uh, El Salvador in a national team game. Again, I've met you at some point in that 89 to 94 team. And then ironically, I introduced Ralph Perez, who you mentioned earlier as the honorary All-American on Saturday. And they're all tied to you and this wonderful soul that you have. Excited about the movie. I'm glad that you reminded people to watch the documentary. I'm glad that you reminded people to read your autobiography. And I did want to just segue a little bit into the fact that, you know, I mentioned that you're from Trinidad and Tobago. You came over here and made a mark. But then at some point, Lincoln, you reminded me that you kind of had a calling back to Trinidad and Tobago to try to help them straighten things out. Can you maybe do the condensed version of that story and what you accomplished when you returned? Yes, I've always wanted to go back to Trinidad to really help the game because 
I came from, from my community. A lot of people helped me. I'm, I'm very beholden to a lot of my benefactors. And I've always wanted to go back and take the game to the next level. And my mission statement when I sent my scheme, coaching scheme down there was to help Trinidad qualify all their national teams for FIFA competition. That was in 2004 when I went back. I left in 2011, 2011, okay? So between that time, the senior national team qualified in 2006 in Germany. The under 20 team qualified. The under 17 team qualified. The women, the women were just about listed. Everything was in, in works. You know, the works were, everything was right there in play and moving according to plan. And what I did, quite frankly, um, Dean, was to take back the education that I got from here. I came to the United States as a coach, as a very good coach. I, I think I had the art of coaching down pat. But as, when I joined the National Coaching School under Walter Chisowicz, the coaching staff was absolutely amazing. Very, so many very intelligent people. And there I was able to, to learn about the art, the science of coaching. And then I started a school at Howard University. And so the science of coaching, that helped me to be a better coach. So the art of coaching, I had that. And the science of coaching. And when I went back to Trinidad, I decided to really copy the coaching scheme of the United States Soccer Federation, okay? And we put in place coaching licenses, D and C, and I qualified over 800 D-licensed coaches. The plan was two years later to get that same group into the C, into the A. And so I started from below. And then from the top, for the top coaches, I had the, the Dutch Federation, I made um, contacts with them and they came in and did coaching courses on that level. So we hitting it from the top and the bottom and we had coaches visiting Holland. And that was something that I, 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 I wanted to get going. Our coaches need to be going abroad, not necessarily to coaching courses, but to, to, to clubs to see how they, they, they do their business, they run their business. That's what I did in my, in my seven years in Trinidad. It was truly a wonderful situation, but at the end of the day, my contract could not be renewed because I was being paid by the government and then it started getting pol political and the good Lord sent me back up here to my, to grand, my grandchildren. All right. That's awesome. Well, because I know that, uh, you know, your own family is super important. And, you know, as we bounce around, I'm also reminded of the fact that I sent you a picture with me and the King Pele. And then you reminded me that you played against him several times. Can you go down that memory lane, knowing that uh, you were not only probably friends with Pele, knowing you Lincoln, but the fact that you played against him? I was coaching the Washington Dots. In 1960, uh, 1960, 1970, okay, Pele came to town with Santos and they selected an all-star team. Okay, on the all-star team, Vic Rose from Atlanta, goalkeeper, and myself were co-coaches. Okay. And we played a game against Santos in Chicago. And that game tied 4-4. 
Pele didn't score, you know, he just you know, apparently must have been taking it easy. And um, so my team, the Washington Dads, scheduled a game the Saturday, the next Saturday. And what a game that was. I was not impressed with Pele because he was just walking around the place. <laughs> and then he must have said to himself, well, these guys are paying me a lot of money. Let me... Um, let me score a few goals. Boom, boom. Within, within the space of 10 minutes, he had two goals. <laughs> and, but we had, I had done a good job scouting because Carlos Alberto was the right winger. And he, in Chicago, he was assist on all four goals. So that meant that space behind there was open. We had a very fast winger by the name of Archibald. And I decided, by coaching, uh, instructions were every time we clear the ball, clear it up to the corner flag, the other side corner flag. And the Archibald was four times, crossed the ball four times, Jerry Bong scored four goals. So the game at halftime was 3-3. Three, three, and as we came out, the game, we, score, uh, we scored, so it was 4-3 in our favor. <laughs> and then uh, the last 50, 20 minutes, they, they, they brought on about five substitutes and it was no contest. The game ended 7-4. But what a wonderful mm -hmm. game that was. And while in Chicago, we traveled in the same bus. And if you didn't know that that was Pele, you wouldn't recognize him. He's just one of the guys playing a mm -hmm. guitar, you know, and then signing autographs, hugging everybody. He's just, just, you know, he felt, it seemed as though he felt that he was honored to sign somebody's autograph or hug somebody and, and smile with every picture. That's humility in this great guy. And then I, then I played with a, um, several years later, just before Pele came to the United States. My team, the Baltimore Bays, played them on two occasions. And there were two high-scoring high games. Pele was just probably angry or something like that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but two, two, you know, he scored, he was just, he was just a phenomenal player. But what I was impressed with about Dean was his 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 aerial superiority. He's only five foot eight. And the guy we had marking him was an African who's six foot four. And a ball was struck across the goal, not a driving ball, a, a, a lobbing ball. He went up in the air. Stayed up for a little while and hammered that ball over my head into the first post. And I have never seen anybody head a ball that hard. And 10 minutes later, a similar situation came up. Now I'm ready for this header above my head. No way he can score on me. He smacked it down onto the goal line and watched <laughs> me and laugh. <laughs> and, and, and that is what... Pele was all about. Your Sun Tzu once said, you know, make your enemy feel you're near when you're far or far when you're near. That was Pele. May you feel, you know, he's going to head the ball upstairs? No, he goes downstairs. <laughs> if, he's go if, he, if, he, if he thinks, you think that he's going to your right, he's going to the left. And he's just, he's just, he's just a phenomenal guy. A lot of people, a lot of people, you know, compare Messi and all these guys. There's no comparison. He is in a world in a, on cloud nine by himself because not only was he fantastic on the soccer field, he was equally fantastic 
of the soccer field. Yeah, and amen. Yeah, and and like you, he dedicated a ton of time to NSCAA, now United Soccer Coaches, which you continue to be a part of. You were there this week, and you were there on Saturday night. We're here with the legend that is Lincoln Phillips. I want to remind you, there's already a documentary out. We touched on it called Redemption Song, the untold story of Howard University soccer team. There's an autobiography on Lincoln Phillips, and they're going to make a movie about Lincoln Phillips. We covered that already, and I want you to be thinking about that. I now want to switch to Howard University. You had those two undefeated seasons and the NCAA championships. And now I also think about, you know, key tipping points for me. One of my favorite people that whole time was Philip Jow. He didn't make the 90 or 94 team, but he was right there. Philip Jow is now the coach. I've gone on to call his kids at different levels. He had a daughter at Duke just down the road from me, Lincoln. So I always feel connected to that. I got to believe you're happy that there's a man like Philip Jow now running the program that essentially you created and put on the map with such great success. Dean, well, there's a little story behind that. Okay. In 1960, in 1968, I was coaching the Washington Dots. And there was a, a young man from Africa by the name of Joseph Jow. They used to call him Nana. I coached Nana. I was Nana's coach. That is Philip Jow's father. Okay. Several years later, okay, Nana comes to me and says, Coach, I have a little son. He just came over from Ghana. I'd like you to see him. He's 12 years old. When I went to see this guy, I said, my Jesus, this guy is kicking the ball like a man. You know, <laughs> that was Philip. Uh -huh. Right? real nice player, grew up. And then at my camp, Lincoln Phillips Soccer School, you know, obviously I brought him in, you know, and he was one of the counselors there. And he, he grew up in, you know, from the, in, the soccer, in the soccer school. And at our soccer school, we had Carl Heinz Hedegaard. We had a lot of international coaches and so on from the Caribbean and Africa and, and Germany and all over the place. So uh, Philip got school and did very well, came out did very well. Now, Philip has two children. Philip now calls me. His son is playing on a team named the uh, Something Road Runners. They were 10 year, 10 year olds and they were the national champions. <laughs> you should see these kids play. Yeah. I mean, uh, these kids were phenomenal. And Nana's son was dribbling all the time. And the parents didn't like it. The parents was calling him a ball hog. So Nana called me in to talk to the parents. And when I saw this kid play, I told the parents and Nana, leave him alone. Let him dribble till he falls down. Let him have a good time. The time will come when he will learn when to give off the ball. And that little boy remembered that. He eventually came and played for played in, in Germany and came back and played a little bit for the national team but got injured. I can't say that I I, I coached I coached the daughter. The daughter is, is is she played on the under 17 boys team. Just was just as outstanding as some of the outstanding players. She is a wonderful person. And I think my her name's son Mia, right? Mia. Yeah, I think Mia. it's yeah. 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 My son, my last son, Derek, Derek Phillips, who's a outstanding speed and agility and performance enhancement person. Whenever they come back from Germany or Mia comes back from a team, you know, in the Christmas break or whatever, they go to Derek because when Derek is finished with them, they go back to the teams, they're sharp. They, they, they move nice and easy. So 
there is is such a, a connection between the jobs. You know, it, it it is just amazing. It it really is, and I feel like there's now a connection between all of us. And I think that's why I told you I was uplifted to, you know, make sure that uh, you, we get your message out and we're going to get a lot of coaches message out. And what I told you, Lincoln, it's going to be a point where very soon where we're going to get, you know, a Rob Smith on or a Bo Shoney or a Kadani McAlpine or a Hugh Menzies or a Lauren Donaldson, who I think Nicole Hercules said it best where he might be the best women's coach. And that guy, has no ego, never like gets in your face about it or whatever, but he's producing phenomenal players and they're just going to come on the show and they're just going to tell their story and no one's going to know they're black or white because you know what? It just doesn't matter. So I want to end with that because when I saw you up there and I understand afterwards, you weren't feeling that well, but I know what you were seeing. You were seeing, I guess the best way to see the success of all the commitment you put in when it wasn't so easy. And now you're seeing the legacy people in there like you, like Mike, like Hugh. And then you're seeing the new leaders in there like Maya Hayes, like Andrew Richardson, who's taking over for the chair, like the captain of cool Kadani McAlpine. That's what you're feeling. Right. And that's what we're going to move toward moving forward. I want to end with your thoughts on that because you had the legacy leaders and then you've got your new leaders, Lincoln, and the future's bright. Yeah, the future is bright, man. I, I, I um, you know, we just want to to get an opportunity to uh, perform as black folks, an opportunity to perform on the level just like everybody else. We want equality. Okay, we feel that if we are given an opportunity to 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 coach uh, on the college level, to coach on the professional level, and we have proven it, we will do just as good as anybody else. And uh, I feel the only way to make that happen is for us to own our own teams. We have to own our franchises and build our own table. And that's the next step. And with this group of young people, and then we have another group of young uh, female leaders, then we are fired up. The Black Coaches Association, we are fired up. <laughs> and that's what I saw last night. And uh, we are fired up to do what? To, to bring soccer to the, to the next level in the United States. That's what we are fired up all about. We want, we want to win the World Cup, man. You know? right. And we have to do our part in, in, in helping to produce some of the best soccer players, best coaches, best administration, best everything. That's yeah. what I felt. That's what I felt that night. And, um, well, and that's what you said. You said owning. And I love that you said that because that is more than just a seat at the table. That is, quote, owning the table. And that's where we're headed for sure. Lincoln, you have to do me one favor as we say goodbye. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for making this happen so quickly. And that is, and I know you're going to have a lot of people reaching out to you, but we kind of previewed the notion that this movie is coming out. When the movie is ready, you have to promise me, Sir Lincoln Phillips, and I know you said call you Coach, Coach Phillips, I'm calling you Coach right now. Please promise me, Coach, that when the movie is out, you'll reach back out and we'll get you on to talk about the debut of this movie that we're all excited about. Can you, can you make that promise to me, sir? I don't have to make that promise. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Awesome. You know, you took, you took the time to, to, to get to me and so on and, and um it will be an absolute pleasure 
to, to contact you. Aki, as a matter of fact, I have all your information here and um, I'm going to send you a copy of the autobiography and I, I'll keep you in the loop, man. All right. Awesome. Lincoln Phillips, what a great pleasure to have you on so quickly after the convention. Can't wait for the movie to come out. You keep doing great things. I'll try to do my part. Lincoln Phillips, thanks for being on the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Dean, it's a pleasure and honor, and I hope the listening audience uh, enjoy the show. Thank you very much for having me on. I know they will because our listeners love listening to legends, and Lincoln Phillips is indeed a legend. We started the show talking about his book, about the epilogue, and everything that is great about the book. What we didn't know when we started the show is that Lincoln actually purchased more than 3,000 books from the publisher. They are in his basement. They deserve to be read. They deserve to be purchased. Lincoln is telling me that you can purchase directly from him by just emailing him at phillipslincoln41, that's P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, lincoln 41 at gmail.com or by calling him at 443-896-4748. That's 443-896-4748. And once again, that email is Phillips with two L's, Lincoln41 at gmail.com. As I mentioned, he has more than 3,000 books in his basement, which he bought from the publishers. He would surely like to recover those dollars, hard to blame him for such a great book. The book plus shipping is only $20 and it will be autographed if you use the email or the phone number that I shared with you. Each person can request a personal note and actually tell Lincoln to have the book signed to a specific person upon request. Buy his book, phillipslincoln41 at gmail.com or 443-896-4748. Only $20 including shipping. I encourage all of you to buy his book for yourself or for a special someone that deserves to hear his story. I hope you do it. I hope you purchase the book. And we thank Lincoln again. And when we return, we hit the training ground with Tree Beckman. As a soccer coach, you're no stranger to developing your players. But how are you developing your own expertise? As a United Soccer Coaches member, you receive access to a range of resources, like our online learning platform, The Training Ground, to aid in the growth and enhancement of your coaching skills and career. From coaching education courses to lifestyle services, take advantage of new opportunities and member benefits with an annual United Soccer Coaches membership for just $125. Join the home of all coaches today at unitedsoccercoaches.org. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Lee Gaps. You just heard the new advertisement promoting the training ground. So it's only fitting that we come off of that ad with a key contributor to the training ground. I have really enjoyed getting to know Teresa Tree Beckman, a true North sports team specialist and really an expert on culture and all things related to culture. And she submitted another article for February. Believe it or not, she also has one in January. We'll trail our interview with that but right now we'll tell you that she has just written an article called introducing the jeffersonian dinner a surefire way to create team connection and first of all that 
headline and that title is a really good one. So with that tree, we say hello. How you doing, tree? I'm great, Dean. I love being on this with you. It's it's awesome. Well, I love having you on. That's for sure. So let's just start with before we dig deeper. You know, you've got this title, introducing the Jeffersonian dinner. What does that mean exactly? So the Jeffersonian dinner is a real thing. And it was started by one of the founding fathers of our country, Thomas Jefferson. The legend goes that back in the day, he loved to have thought leaders around the table and he was hard of hearing, right? So he designed these dinners as a way to exchange ideas just in a more meaningful, more complete way, but a way that everybody could contribute and be a part of it. Like everybody was a part of this conversation. And I came across it, uh, I don't know, several years ago. And I, I got to tell you, of all the things that people email and ask me for, the Jeffersonian dinner is really among the top ones. Once you do it, and I've done this actually right before the convention in Philly, we had our in-person portion. Right now, I'm part of the team that's building the pilot program that the United Soccer Coaches Association is creating, and it's a coach credentialing program. So we have a cohort of 60 coaches, 40 head coaches. 20 assistant coaches, all at the NCAA level, who are a part of this program that goes from roughly like last month, December, through we'll, ca we'll cap it in Kansas City in July. And we meet mostly online, but we had an in-person event at the beginning and the end. And we did a Jeffersonian dinner with that cohort. And whether you're doing it with student athletes on your team, or I'm doing it with coaches, business leaders, or whatever, it's a really cool dinner. And it was part of how this country was formed. And I think that's so, it's just so cool to me. And actually she begins right away by talking about connecting people and the Jeffersonian dinner. And she also says, hey, if you have questions after we speak or after you read the article, you can reach her at tree at truenorthsports.net. And folks, you can also check her out on Instagram at tree roots, R-O-O-T-S culture. And I'll say that again, before we say goodbye, you get right into the Jeffersonian dinner, which is awesome, as you kind of just laid it down. And it's pretty cool that as part of what you're doing with the training ground, I just want to reemphasize the fact that you've already done that. And what were your takeaways from doing that? When we did that with the coaches, I mean, it's just a way, and basically it's nothing, it's not super special. Like the questions are pretty poignant and they're, and they're sort of started in a way to get people to kind of loosen up and there's no side conversation. There's one person on the clock for, you know, a minute and a half to two minutes without interruption, without side conversations. And it really allows people this space. And there's something about the dinner that just encourages its participants to open up and be vulnerable. And at the end of the day, it's not about networking. It's not about trying to, you know, make a connection that might help you. It's not transactional. It's literally just about showing up and being seen, expressing your ideas and having people while you're breaking bread, just listen to you and then share their ideas. It's not an exchange back and forth. It's not a trampoline. So it feels different. And I'll tell you, when we did this in, in, in Philly, with the coaches, I mean, occasionally you'll have some tears, but they always walk away feeling more connected. And right now, even before the pandemic hit, we, we had an epidemic of loneliness in this country, especially. And we just don't connect. That's why you feel so much polarization and everything else. We're not talking about politics and we're just connecting because it's really hard to hate up close. And so if you can do that with coaches of different sports, boy, do you feel less like you're on an island? If you can do it with your team, 
boy, the next time they have a conflict, might they not go to each other instead of, you know, texting or talking about each other? So it's just a really powerful thing. I'm pretty sure you set the table just like Thomas Jefferson, because you said sample message to send ahead of time. And you said in Jefferson's day, he would send a note that included some information on the dinner and its boundaries. The table mates one could expect to be seated with. And the first, and the first question. question, please tell me you did this as part of what happened in Philadelphia. We did everything except for giving their table mates because we all we also wanted to surprise them with we put them in like Wolfpack and we didn't want to give that away. But everything else we did that in Philly. Yeah. Coming out of that, there are questions designed to help participants open up about themselves and about things that may have an impact on them in relation to the team. We may not be able to cover all 10 of them, but right away you say finish this. A major challenge I've overcome is what kind of reaction did you get on that? Oh boy, I, I think there was some great conversation around that one. And, and, and I encourage people when they're doing that one to take it any way they want. This could be with their teams. It could be in their personal life. By then, it just depends on where that one falls because the order of these is pretty important. The first one is, is, the, is the most fun one. And I actually got that from a real life experience. And the question is basically, imagine every time you walked into a room or entered a building, like your walk-up song was playing, right? So like a song that like, you know, personified your life or whatever. Coaches have a lot of fun with that one. And that, that actually happened to me in my work with uh, growing leaders. They're headquartered in Atlanta. And one time I went down just to like spend, I had to do a couple of, of things like meetings and whatnot. And when I walked into headquarters, they had chosen a song that they thought was fitting for me and had it blaring through the whole headquarters, like a walk-up song. And I was like, you know what? That's actually kind of cool. And so coaches have a lot of fun starting off with that one. But there's the one that gets the most tears, honestly, is like, finish the sentence. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Boy, that, that definitely is the tearjerker around, I think. Oh, yeah. I would love to hear some of those answers. What was your walk-up song, Tree? What'd you pick? They picked it for me. I had that growing leaders. It's called You Might Not Like Me. And it's by Bryn Elliott. And it sounds, it, you're like the title, what? And it's like, if you don't like girls who are stronger than you, if you don't like girls who are faster than you, you might not like me. And I thought, what a what an awesome compliment to get from that team, you know, like that's cool. And it wasn't like in a, it's not like in a bad way. It's just like a tongue in cheek. But I thought that's a cool, I'd never heard it before. So that's my current walk-up song. I, I liked it. I like it. You know, and I got to tell you, after coming off the convention, my heart is full. It was one of the most inspirational conventions I've ever been a part of. And in fact, right before you, Lincoln Phillips was part of that inspiration. I think I'd go with a little bit of soft cheese on you. And I think I'd go with Sarah Evans. I could not ask for more. That's how I'm feeling right now, Tree. Oh, man, I love that. I love that. I'm going to listen to it as soon as we get out. Just so I, I like to go through and like listen to people's walk-up songs just so I can get a better, you just get to know people better, right? Yeah, I, I mean, that. I it might have people kind of, you know, just slither down in their chair a little bit as opposed to getting pumped up. But right now, I could not ask for more, including visiting with you, Tree. Right. I mean that. Yeah. Now, at the end of the meal, you say the facilitator will serve the room well if at the end of the meal, they remind the participants to simply thank their dinner mates for showing up and letting themselves be seen. I like that, too, because a lot of the messages at the convention, including the honorary All-American, was telling the kids to remember these two words, thank you. So I like how you've tied that into this ending of the Jeffersonian meal. Yeah, you know, and I think that entitlement is something that we all have to struggle against, all of us, all ages, right? And I think entitlement has an inverse relationship with resilience, happiness, and gratitude. And at any time that we can practice 
being thankful or, or gracious towards the people around us, we're reducing our entitlement. And I think that's going to be good for our happiness and our resilience. So I think it's all tied together. Yeah. All right. Great article coming out in February. You also put a capper on the magic of feedback in coaching. I'd like to end with at least one comment. You actually start that article with a pulled quote that says, the person with the most power in any relationship is most responsible for the level of authenticity of the feedback they receive. Break it down, Tree. Yeah, this will show up in the January journal. So it's a little different. The February one will be in the newsletter. It'll end up on the training ground. This is a journal article, so it's a little bit more elaborate. It talks about the trust level just in our society right now. It, it, you know, it's kind of being pretty low. As coaches, a big, big part of our job is giving feedback. And I think that all humans have a hard time, some harder than others, at receiving feedback. But when you're in a position like a coach or any leadership position, you have to understand that you bear the brunt of the responsibility for how, how true the feedback is that you're getting. And it might be uncomfortable, and it's not about building consensus, but the, the more you can build a culture of, of really authentic, true, honest feedback, especially if you can get that from your players, it's just going to be a better culture, period. It is. If you're building a culture where nobody's allowed to disagree with you, you're not building a culture, you're building a cult. And quite frankly, you're not going to grow. And eventually your luck, if you're successful for a few years, cool, but your luck is going to run out. This is the feedback loop of my team culture model, I think is where most people actually end up losing their jobs, if I'm being quite honest. And you have to work really hard, give you feedback in an honest way. I love it. Two great articles by Tree Beckman. I already mentioned that you can email her at tree at truenorthsports.net. I mentioned her Instagram earlier. I also have her Twitter, so I'm feeling pretty good because that's more kind of my thing, you know what I mean? Because I'm an older dude, Tree. And it's at T Beckman, B-E-E-C-K-M-A-N, 13, which happens to be my favorite number, Tree. Always a pleasure. Yes, love hanging out with you, Tree Beckman. Always great. Thank you so much for uh, giving uh, all your insight to us here on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Dean. As always, it was great. Tree is always great. I haven't known her that long, but every time I spend time with her, I am definitely ready to rock and roll. And I feel the same way about Dan Wogue, somebody I have known for a long, long time, about as long as I've known the great Lincoln Phillips, who we had on earlier. Dan Wogue is now an at-large member of the United Soccer Coaches Board of Directors. He is an amazing writer for Soccer America, a longtime successful high school coach, former chair of the United Soccer Coaches LGBTQ and Allies Coaching Community. I caught up with the great Dan Wogue at the United Soccer Coaches Convention, and you'll hear my visit with him when we return. Performance analysis is now recognized as having a crucial role to play in any coaching program. United Soccer Coaches Performance Analysis Level 1 Special Topics Diploma will provide coaches with real-world examples of how analysis is being used to enhance the individual player development process and maximize team performance. Additionally, successful candidates will achieve Level 1 accreditation as an Applied Performance Analyst from the International Society of Performance Analysis of Sport. Register now by visiting the Master Course Schedule on unitedsoccercoaches.org. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps Evergreen Material as we're here at the convention in Philadelphia. Always good to see old friends and one of my favorite people, Dan Wogue. 
Dan, great to see you. Oh man, this is, uh, it, it's the highlight of the year, isn't it? It is, and Dan, it's like the Godfather. You tried to leave and we got you back. You're on the board now, Dan. Tell us <laughs> how that happened and how much you're enjoying it. Uh, go figure. I uh, <laughs> ran for uh, vice president uh, four years ago, didn't make it, and uh, there are second acts. So I've been involved with the Advocacy Council all along, starting with founding the LGBTQ and Allies group and as it's grown and I've realized how important it is, I've worked with Sue Ryan, the legendary Sue Ryan, the wonderful Sue Ryan, and she is term limited off the board of directors. Okay. And go figure, here I am. All right. So what do you remember about the call? Who called you to say, hey, we want you? I think it was just sort of one of those things that happened. Okay. She pushed for me. She made the case to the board of directors. And I guess a couple of months ago, she said, you know, you're on. And I said, what am I getting myself into? And she said, you'll have a lot of fun. And I, I really look forward to it. It is a creative, intelligent, progressive, interesting group of people who get things done. Well, I'm going to sound like a sycophant, but you fit all of those words, by the way, and I mean that sincerely. So it's natural that you're in there. But you just retired from coaching. I thought it was swan song time now, Dan, but no, you love I, the association too much, right? You know what? I'm not out there playing pickleball or, or shuffleboard. Uh, it, <laughs> retiring has given me a chance to do things that uh, I am passionate about, and advocacy work is one of them. And the association I love, I have gotten so much out of meeting people and, and being involved. And this is another way to give back. I find the board fascinating as there's some coaches, there's some characters like Rusty, there's some high academia like Dr. Dave Carr. There are women of power that are making big differences, as you know, representing the LGBTQ community. I mean, it's a fascinating group. But every time I talk to, you know, Ashley Fontes Comer or the new president, Dr. David Carr or Kevin Sims, who just left, or Jeff Van Dusen, more importantly, he said it is just a great team. Like, everybody really works well together. Is that what you're seeing? I, I, that's the sense I get. Okay. But I think the power of the board is that everybody brings a different perspective. Amen. It's not a lot of, you know, old white men, which I am one of. It's not a lot of people from the same area or the same age. And I think that's important on a board to have people all with the same vision for the organization, but different life experiences and perspectives and ways of getting to that end result. I know Dan, the writer. I know Dan, the high school coach. I know Dan, the advocate. Who is Dan, the board member? Are you, you're not a yes man, are you? Are you, are you in there to, to get to the right answer? Yes, and I don't know how. <laughs> um, I've been on boards before. Okay. I am certainly going to sit back and, and learn. I'm okay. going to learn the dynamics of the people, how they come to conclusions. And my job succeeding Sue Ryan is to advocate for advocacy, not to be a yes man, not to say advocacy gets all the pieces of the pie or anything like that, but it's to be a voice for all those different groups and helping bring that perspective to the full board. I know there are a lot of key initiatives. There are a lot of key agenda items. This week in Philadelphia, I'm interviewing Cindy Parlow Cohn and JT Batson, the new CEO from U.S. Soccer. That leads me to believe that 
under Jeff Van Dusen now, creating a deeper tie with U.S. soccer is part of the mission. Can you talk about that at all? I think it's crucial. And we've talked about that from here this week in Philadelphia with people who feel that education has been sort of overlooked with the association. And that goes back to the differences between the association and U.S. soccer. Mm -hmm. We are all in it together. We're all in it for the good of the game. Soccer is made up of, of coaches, of players, of administrators. But, you know, we saw in, in uh, the World Cup, everyone was united to watch the U.S. team. You know, we're all in this, this soccer boat, and, and we've all got oars, and we can all pull together, or we can flounder, and, you know, and, 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 and we'll sink. Well, and part of using those oars is to help Jeff and Angie and Beth and the national staff in Kansas City. Talk about how important that is because they're essentially making things happen. Yeah, it's, it's a great staff. The board oversees them. Every time I'm in Kansas City, I'm impressed at that office. Yep. They get things done. Different people bring different strengths. You know, Jeff has put his mark on that office. But boy, I look around and I say, I am surrounded in the office, on the board, and in U.S. soccer generally, in, in lowercase letters, with some really, really cool people. Two more questions for you. What do you miss most about coaching? What do you not miss? Oh, man, what a good question. I miss the day-to-day -day interaction with the kids. I miss the competitive highs and lows, waking up after a big win or a tragic loss. I do not miss buses, worrying about buses, fields, referees, weather, my athletic director, parents, who's going to screw up at the pasta dinner. Um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I do not miss that at all. But, but boy, do I miss the day-to-day -day interaction with kids. And then what do you miss about being the chair of the LGBTQ and allies soccer community? And what are you liking about what Cage has brought there? Uh, Cage is great. It's a really, really interesting group. Very diverse. I miss being involved with, with that on a day-to-day -day basis. But boy, I mean, you talk about coaching communities. Black, Latino, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, faith-based, disabilities, women. There's a lot going on, and, and for me to be able to be involved with that is a dream come true. And as we say goodbye, please tell me that you will continue to write your marvelous articles for <laughs> Soccer America. Is that part of your platform still? It absolutely is. I'm a, I'm a writer first and foremost, and Soccer America, there again, it's a progressive, forward-looking publication that I am honored to be part of. Well, you do great work. I'm honored to be with you here. Thanks for spending time with us, Dan. I'm so glad you're on the board. Well done. Uh, Dean, a lot of fun, and uh, I guess I'm your boss now, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> Put a good word in for me, will you? You're hired. All right. Thank you, my man. Thanks, Dean. Uh, Dan Wogue always brings a smile to my face. Thank you so much for dropping by Podcast Row. We'll have more of those kind of interviews through the next couple months that I think you'll really find intriguing. It was just great to have just a white-hot focus on the great people in front of me. We kicked off with one of those people leading Safe Sport, which was awesome. Now Dan Wogue. Up next, we end our show meeting another member of our 30 Under 30 class, Marty Corby on the bounce. Does it feel like all you're doing to manage your team, club, or league is busy work? 
If so, League Apps can help you get back to doing what you love, delivering a powerful yet simple youth sports management platform from robust registration and payment tools to automated communications and other software integrations. League Apps saves you time and headaches. Less busy work, more time doing what you love. Go to leagueapps.com to learn more. League Apps is proud to be the presenting sponsor of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by League Gaps. I really enjoy this part of the show where we meet another impressive member of the 30 under 30 class. It's no different today as we meet Marty Corby. Marty, great to be with you on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Thank you for having me, Dean. Well, Marty, I got to start with the fact that you were a great player for Grand Valley State. I have a lot of time for that program because of Dave Diani and now the Haas, Jeff Hostler, with the success they've had on the Big Ten Network, where I call a lot of games. Let's start with there, and then we'll bounce around. Tell us why you picked Grand Valley State, and obviously you had incredible success. I think you won three natties, and you played for both of those coaches, Dave and Jeff. Yeah, Grand Valley was always on my radar since it was a local college. I grew up in Grand Rapids, born and raised. My final two colleges came down to Central Michigan and Grand Valley, so both Michigan schools. I knew I didn't want to travel too far, but what drew me to Grand Valley was, you know, the team and the recent success and the championship culture that Dave created, knowing that you could go to a school and have a high probability of winning a national championship was kind of unfathomable to me. And so to have that chance and just to hop right into it and somehow pull it off the first year with him was a dream come true, to say the least. So definitely just seeing how competitive Dave is and just how he ran his program, the team culture, still best friends with a lot of those girls too who were recruited and loved the same things that they saw there. What about when the Haas came in? How was that different? How was it the same? Yeah, it's always nerve wracking having a, a switch like that since you are recruited by a coach and it's a long process. So you never know if what, what's going to happen with the switch there. And luckily, you know, Grand Valley chose the right guy and he came in and he didn't try to change things much. He had the same outlook as Dave with let's bring a championship right away. Like he's not going to come in and be timid. And I, I know, you know, Haas really well. So he's not a timid guy. He <laughs> comes in, he, he steps into those big shoes. So he knew he had huge shoes to step into and right away he wasn't scared he didn't let anything bother him and he took his confidence and our confidence right into it where we could get to that championship right away. And we were ranked, I think, maybe 11 going into the tournament that year. So it wasn't like we were, you know, the top seeded team or the favorite to win the tournament. But I think he knew that the group of kids he had, he knew Dave very well. So, you know, just for him to be able to wrap us under his wing, get us all on the same page in one season you know, it just proves what he can do on and off the field. And he obviously has showed that going into Michigan State as well. Yeah, great success there. It's interesting you said big shoes because one's a giant in Haas and then one's <laughs> just kind of a little guy in Dave. Totally different in stature, but obviously the same as far as their drive and their success. Yeah, definitely different sizes there. But <laughs> I think the same, like you said, the competitiveness, I 
is unmatched between those two. And it's fun with Haas too, because he would take us to his, you know, family's lake house. So we got to see competitiveness off the field too, where you're just playing cornhole <laughs> bags and, you know, you know, we're doing skit competitions or karaoke competitions. And he, he brought that competitiveness, not only at practice day in and day out, but you know, within fun activities and games off the field too. Well, one thing I can tell you about Haas and obviously he inherited you, but he knows a good player when he sees one. You're a big time player, two time player of the year, four time division two All-American selection, 2015 academic All-American selection. So clearly you were legit, which I think, you know, was able to fit right into Dave and Jeff's competitiveness. Tell me what position you played. because You obviously had a lot of success. Congratulations, Marty, on all that success. Thank you. Yeah, I call those my glory days back then, <laughs> aging out of it. But yeah, I was lucky to have, you know, amazing rosters and teammates and coaches during my time there. And I don't think I would have ever gotten those accolades without the team success, you know, getting to the national stage each year puts your you and your teammates on that top platform for many coaches to see and for you guys to kind of showcase your talent in front of the the nation. So we were lucky, you know, I couldn't have done it without great teammates, great coaches to get to that level. But we talk about competitiveness with Dave and Haas, and I also have a high competitive, you know, nature, spirit, nature. It's just something within me growing up with a big family and it's on and off the field too. So everything is just, you know, as the best of my ability, can I, can I go win this, whether it's playing the cards with the family or, you know, playing in the national championship game. So I think that helped raise the level in college and just the standard of excellence that both coaches set, you know, makes you want to go do extra and do more. And so, you know, all of our teammates, we'd be out there running extra, we'd be hitting extra free kicks. We'd be trying to do you know, anything we can before and after practice to keep improving and try to be the best player we can be. And that I, I owe that to the, the culture of the team. And it just definitely helped me flourish and thrive there, you know, and get to that top level that I could get to. All right. So enough about Dave and Jeff. They're cool. They're good. But I want to know about your family. You said you got a big family. Tell me mm -hmm. about your family and go ahead and say their names. We want to hear their names on this show. Yeah, I have three siblings, one younger brother named Reed, one older brother named Trent, and one older sister, Brenna, and then my parents, Jim and Julie. Nice. And we are a loud crew. We are crazy. <laughs> we are the crazy Gorbys, as many probably know. It's just always trying to... Uh, my mom is always trying to host and be the life of any type of party. Like I said, if it's backyard yard games, you can imagine me being competitive, but with three other me's that are in the family, it's uh, becomes a, a rowdy, <laughs> rowdy time. I love it. And as I'm reading some of your answers to your application, I find it fascinating that it was clear that during college, you wanted to be a coach. It says here you would run a youth sports camp out of your backyard and teach all the young neighborhood kids every sport in the books. And that evolved into joining the local high school girls soccer staff as an assistant coach. That sounds pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one thing I like to do during the summers um, was gather any local neighborhood kids or family friends that I knew um, to run a week-long camp and I didn't just make it a soccer camp I was very 
into all sports growing up. So I made it an all sports camp. So I'd bring the kids in and each day we'd do a different sport. I'd try to teach them a different sport. That was when I learned a great amount of patience and we're younger kids. It's a tougher time to teach them. You got to take your time. You got to make sure that they understand it fully. And you kind of, it's almost like babysitting at times when you've got that group there, but it was a good intro for me to kind of see the world of coaching when I got the email that, that the Allendale High School soccer coach was looking for assistance. It was a no-brainer. And that was when I was in college still. So it was our off season. So it worked well scheduling wise. And that was really my first taste of a real team and, um, you know, being a coach of some older, older women that really had the opportunity and ability to, to learn and get to the next level and being out on the field. And we took a team that had, after our first year, I think we're middle of the pack in the conference. Then our second year, we won the conference title. So it was a really cool two-year swing that I was able to work, work with Coach Santana there. That's awesome. You got the youth, then you got the high school, and then I know you eventually made it to college, Adrian College. Did I miss anything between your stop at Allendale to Adrian College? I went to Xavier down in Cincinnati to get my master in sport administration. Very good. So now you have that, you have your master's, you're rolling along in coaching. And now I know you had to make a big decision. You recently got married and I know your wife had to move down to South Carolina. So you were at Western Michigan rolling along and probably enjoying it because you know Michigan's a great state, but those are the kind of sacrifices you have to do when you get married. As you know, Marty, you got to do it together, right? So talk about that decision because how, how long were the assistant at Western Michigan? I was able to be there this fall season. So from July to about December there. Okay. But it's just one of those things you had to, you had to do, right? You had to move together. Before that I was at Aquinas and my coach Lewis Robinson, he had got the job at Western and we moved as a staff. And so I knew it was potentially going to be a short-term thing, but it was always a dream of mine and the coaching world to try to compete and coach at the top level, you know, get a taste for division one athletics. And so you know, even though it was a short stint, I'm still obviously grateful to have experienced that. And I certainly knew with my wife being in the U.S. Army, once she finished law school, she was going to be sent somewhere around the country. And this was known ever since I met her, but we just never knew when or where. And so it kind of just popped out of nowhere. That's what I learned. We don't control much, especially when you work for the U.S. Army. So we found out just shortly after I got the Western job, we found out that she would be located in South Carolina come December. So it was definitely a tough, tough hit knowing that, you know, you, you have this great opportunity and you really enjoyed it. But when you look at life and what is truly important, like you said, you make those sacrifices for the ones you love. And I would rather live with her and find a job and be around her than stay for a job and be long distance. So ultimately following our wedding, we came down here. So now I'm a free agent down in Columbia, South Carolina, looking for some opportunities. And not a bad place to be a free agent, because as you and I talked before we came on the air, there's a lot of youth programs down there that are very strong and a lot of colleges at all different levels. The big one is University of South Carolina, and so I will definitely be watching them if I, you know, don't, I haven't, I haven't spoke with the coaches yet, but 
we'll certainly be watching them and their success throughout SEC. I'd love to get season tickets to watch them, but there are some great spots. But again, when you move somewhere, there's not always an open opportunity. So I spoke with a few different universities down here and colleges, and there aren't open positions yet, but it's still hopefully to come. All right, Marty, I know that um, being a member of the 30 under 30 is a big deal. How many times did you apply? How excited were you when you got the word and who were some of the first people that you called? That's three questions loaded up in one. Let's see if you can follow all that. I have not applied before, but I've seen the program ever since I've been a coach. Um, I was always interested, but Sometimes you got to take that leap just to apply because you might think, oh, I'm not going to probably get it. There's so many great coaches around the country that are applying. There's so many great people that are doing great things. So it took a few years for me to get the guts just to go for it. And Lewis definitely encouraged that as well. And so I applied and you kind of play the waiting game where you almost forget what the time frame would be. And so it had been a a month or so maybe and I thought oh I guess you know they just passed on me and maybe next year I'll I'll try to try it again and then I was at a western team event that night and I got the email and I was just glowing I was ecstatic I was like oh my gosh Lewis you have to look at this can you believe it and he was obviously excited for me as well but it was nice to see that I had the opportunity to join the program just to develop as a coach even further, you know, and learn some amazing things from amazing people over the next year. So with that, now that you're essentially fully entrenched, you're already were a member. Now you are part of this, uh, what I call elite level class, you know, 15 amazing women, 15 amazing men that get this special opportunity. And it's all under the auspices of United Soccer Coaches. So when you hear those three words, United Soccer Coaches, what do those three words mean to you? When I think of United Soccer Coaches, one is obviously the word United is all together. I think it's very important that we're all, you know, sharing our resources, trying to build each other up and trying to make each other, you know, better throughout the process. Obviously, we will be competitive against each other on on the field. You know, it's you're not going to try to help them out when they're coaching on the other sideline against you. But I think the big thing about this community is that everyone wants to see everyone succeed and grow and learn and develop. That's what I've learned. I've I've been to most conventions over the years and you know I've been around a lot of members member coaches so just seeing the you know the culture the commitment to growing and learning that's something that I'm excited to be a part of and to continue to be a part of and hopefully someday be able to mentor other kids or mentor other coaches one more longer question then we'll get to a couple rapid fire questions learning perhaps your favorite players so be thinking about your favorite female player and men's okay. player but before we do that obviously you've had to make some sacrifices as you just got married but I do like to ask the crystal ball question Marty Corby and that is where you'd like to see yourself in 10-15 years do you have any thoughts on that 10-15 years oh that is the golden question, isn't it? Uh, my, my goal <laughs> going into coaching, my goal, collegiate coaching specifically, it was to win a national championship to then get into the club of being a player that has won one and a coach that has won one. So nice. if I can get myself into a program and find an opportunity to do that, I would hope hopefully in 15 years, I can say that I've achieved that ultimate goal. I love it. All right, let's go rapid fire. Marty Corby's 
favorite women's player, any level, any country, anywhere? Who's the player that rises to the top for you? Immediately, Carly Lloyd. She was one that I always looked up to. I got to meet her at a Philly convention back in the day as well. But she was just one that I just got to look up to throughout high school, college, and watch her score a plethora of goals, especially in World Cups. I just interviewed her again at this last Philadelphia convention. And it was really, I really valued it because I could tell she's kind of really enjoying retirement. And then how about your favorite men's player of all time? The easy one is Messi. Watching him as a kid grow up, I think I was very lucky to see him as an idol for so many years and to still see him playing. It's just incredible. I don't know how he does it. He is one of the the greatest of all time. (laughs) Your favorite non-soccer sports teams, and it could be football, basketball, and baseball. It could be hockey. It could be none of the above. Who are some of the teams that uh, you like to root for? Well, right now, the University of South Carolina women's basketball team, I've been to a few games. Legit. They are number one in the country. So they have been, Aaliyah Boston is amazing. So those have been really fun to watch. I like that answer. We're big yeah. women's basketball. My, my son is the captain of the team that trains the Carolina women's basketball team. So I love women's basketball. Yeah. Oh, it was it's so cool. So much fun to watch and just be there. And we got season tickets to the softball team as well. So I'll be... I'd say maybe less team specific, but I love just all other sports. I love watching softball, women's basketball. I feel like you look like you could play those other sports too. You kind of got that softball player look too, by the way. I played basketball, but I didn't, softball was the one I never played. My wife played softball. So she was, she's a big softball player, but also maybe uh, I love watching golf too. Might be one of the less popular ones but all right this one will be tough for your mom and dad to hear but your mom's favorite or your dad's favorite oh it goes it's ebbs and flows (laughs) currently let's say my dad's (laughs) (laughs) all right that's awesome but i know they both love you and listen it takes someone special to make it to the united soccer coaches 30 under 30 so well done you marty corby good to get to know you congratulations on your recent wedding i know you're gonna find a great job down there in south carolina and get back doing what you love and uh, appreciate you spending some time with us really enjoyed it thank you dean i appreciate you having me on the show i appreciate you and all of our amazing guests please tell me out there in podcast listening land that you enjoyed the show as much as i did because i thought it was awesome with wonderful people Man, I'm lucky. Thanks for uh, being there with me. I want to thank all the great people at United Soccer Coaches. Jeff Van Dusen, Angie Eliason, Beth Sullivan, Steve Veal, Pat Madden, Erica Dyer, Emily Miller, and specifically with the podcast, Bailey Conklin, who does a great job, Brandon Milburn, Sarah Wilbur, crushing it with the 30 Under 30 program, just absolutely crushing it. And everybody at United Soccer Coaches, they're awesome. Etta, you know who you are. You guys are all great. So great to be with you in Philadelphia. I also want to thank our producer, Colin Thrash, and a shout out to Kyle Lang with his help on Podcast Row as well. All right, that's going to do it. And my name is Dean Linky. I'll see you next week for another edition of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Lee Gaps.
Thanks for listening to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps. League Apps is the leading youth sports management platform, providing organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. To learn more about League Apps, find them at leagueapps.com or as League Apps on all of the social networks. And to learn more about United Soccer Coaches, visit us at unitedsoccercoaches.org.